if you would, to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're going to begin in the 16th verse. Uh, Those of you that have been with us for a while, you know that we've been traveling through the gospel of Mark. And today is the... Uh, the, the grand finale, the, uh, the climax, uh, and we're going to be talking today about the crucifixion, about the cross. And so I want to walk through these verses in Mark 15, and we'll kind of take them verse by verse. Let's begin by <clears throat> setting up a little background. I want us to use our imaginations. I want us to imagine that you are in the barracks of uh, a battalion of Roman soldiers, and it's Thursday night. Oh, by the way, the year is like 33 AD. And it's Thursday night and Passover night. There is, because of Passover, it's connected to the moon, so there is a full moon, and that full moon is illuminating Jerusalem. You're in this garrison, you're in this battalion of soldiers, and, uh, you know, so far, like, another year, another Passover. Your big goal as a Roman soldier every year, it always happens this time of year, everybody from every town and all around the Holy Land, they descend on Jerusalem, the town swells in population, and there's all this talk of Messianic, and Messiah, and Messianic fever, and your job is to, like, get through another Passover. Every year it happens. Uh, there was a Barabbas, but thankfully we've got him arrested. So, so far on this Thursday night, the Passover feast is coming and uh, all these Passover lambs are going to be killed and they're going to celebrate the Passover. Once this feast is over, we can just like go back to, go back to normal. And uh, so far, so far, it's been pretty quiet. So far, it's been quiet. But until the past few hours, some stuff's been coming through on the police scanner and you're picking up uh, some uh, 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 little rumors, and suddenly uh, your orders come through. Captain has told you that you guys are going to suit up. And you can just imagine the conversation there on that Thursday night among the Roman soldiers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who? I'm sorry, what? Who? You're getting dressed. You're getting ready. You're going to the armory. You're checking your, your, uh, your, you know, your, your weapon, which sounds like a, they didn't have swords. Um, and you're, 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 you're trying to get your head around this. I'm sorry, we're going to arrest who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some dude named Jesus. Oh, okay. So he's like, like one of these would-be messiahs. Like, well, another one says, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? Well, it's weird. Like, apparently our job tonight is actually to escort the Jewish chief priests and scribes and elders. So we're going to, the religious leaders, our job is to go out with them to make this arrest of their would-be Messiah. To which somebody else is like, I don't understand. You would think that the religious, the Jewish religious leaders would want a Messiah. To which somebody else is like, bro, who even understands religious people? Am I right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just doing what I'm told. Captain told us we got to go in heavy. So suit up. Apparently, we're going to be there in case this arrest goes sideways. What do you mean go sideways? Yeah, man, you haven't heard? There's legends about this guy. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, apparently, uh, he can do magic. What? Yeah, yeah. He can, like, walk on water. And he, like, fed 5,000 people out of some fish sandwiches and uh, uh, he, he raised the dead and stuff. He could do all this magic. To which the whole Roman barracks is just dying laughing. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's magic. Yeah, right. And Mars is my dad and Venus is my mother. Yeah. 
Because, uh, see, they were Romans. Those were like their gods. <laughs> so they get there, and you imagine they're armed to the teeth, right? And they are ready, just like they were ready to take down Barabbas. They're going, and they've done this before. Messiahs and these freedom fighters, they operate by guerrilla warfare. So they know what to expect. Uh, they're expecting stuff to go down. This is how it always happens. Messiahs are out there, and they've picked, you know, Passover to descend on Jerusalem. And, and the whole city's a powder keg. The problem is you can never find them. This time, we got one of their own to betray him. We got a man on the inside. Yeah, apparently they paid a guy 30 pieces of silver and he's going to blow up the, lo- he's, he's going to, you know, uh, reveal the location. So they're, they're able to go out there. They're armed to the teeth. They don't know what to expect. They just know when these freedom fighters, these guerrilla warriors uh, 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 operate, that they better come armed and they are locked and loaded and they get there. And it's a poor homeless Bible professor with like 11 dudes. They're looking around like, I'm sorry, we're missing something. Like, what? I mean, the temple guards, the, the like rent-a-cops could have handled this. Like, you do not need, you do not need a Roman battalion to take down, like, and one of them, oh, this is the best part. The one, there was one of them that was armed. One of his band of 11 men had a sword, and he was so bad with the sword. Oh, y'all should have seen it. He was trying to kill the dude. He was so bad, he whiffed. The guy ducked, and he nicked his ear, and part of his ear fell to the ground. So in the entire military campaign of Jesus, if you're keeping score, in the entire military campaign of Jesus, there was one casualty. And as if all that's not enough, Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, puts it on the guy's head, and heals it. So even the one casualty has an asterisk by it. Like one, but he healed. So zero, right? That's it. So the Roman soldiers are looking around like, so that's it? That's it. Like, he, he's not going to do any of his magic? Like, he's not, not going to work any of this so-called power? They don't know what to think of this guy. I think that's the only way to explain what comes next. See, 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 see they, they, they get him arrested. They, Jesus goes through this mockery of a trial, right? I mean, the whole thing's a joke. The, 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 the Roman law is supposed to protect people. It was just thrown out the window. And the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders, they know it's an illegal trial. You can't try somebody in the dead of night. They, the witnesses couldn't even agree. It goes back and forth. Poor Pilate is ready to pull his hair out. He's like, I don't care. I'm just trying to p- keep the peace and quiet. So he says to the crowds, uh, how about I release Jesus as a political prisoner? They said, how about you release Barabbas? Because at least Barabbas will fight. You keep Jesus. What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. So Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Fine, y'all want him crucified? Crucify him. So Pilate gives the order to crucify him. The soldiers were supposed to crucify him. They invented this part on their own. What happens next is not their orders. Their orders were to crucify him, but they add this. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. We're going to have a little fun with Jesus before we crucify him. See, this was not their orders. This they just decided on their own. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Why does it take a whole battalion? Well, for one thing, let everybody see the show as they torture this political prisoner. They're trying to humiliate him. There's some cruelty here. You can see, they, verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak. So one of the soldiers says, oh, you're going to be a king? Some king. They, just, they had just flogged him with the, the cat of nine tails whip. Perhaps you've heard a sermon about or you've, you've seen in a Bible study. A lot of prisoners didn't even survive that kind of beating. Here he's bloody and, and, and he's so beaten up. He barely looks human. 
So they, they put a purple cloak on him. Oh, no, no, you're a king. And they, oh, well, every king needs a crown. So they twist together a crown of thorns put in on him. You see the mocking here, right? They, they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, which is what you would say to Caesar. Well, this is, of course, the exact opposite of a Caesar, this mangled body. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, completely unknowingly, of course, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that said they'll look upon him and mock and spit on him. They kneeling down in homage to him. Oh, you're the king. What's going on here? Part of this, I think, is just straight up cruelty. This is just a, a group of guys in the army. A lot of them are rookies, which means they've just gone through being plebes. They've just gone through their first year, and they've been hazed, and they've been <laughs> beaten up. And so when you get somebody and you can give it back to them, they, they, you know, I think it's part of it's cruelty. And, and, and watching everybody torment this helpless prisoner. But I think there's more to it than that. I think these soldiers are convinced if there's any fight left in this guy, we need to see it. If there's any followers that are willing to stand up for Jesus, come out now. In other words, I think they're trying to provoke a response. I think that, that's the only way to explain why there was a whole battalion. Like, uh, uh, like uh, let's poke the bear. Right? Let, let, let's provoke Jesus. And it, now or never, if you got any fight left, is anybody going to stand up for you? No. No, I didn't think so. All right. Let's take him out. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes back on him. Their dressing and undressing Jesus shows they have complete control. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. The condemned prisoner would carry this cross beam up to the place of ex- execution. And uh, apparently Jesus had lost so much blood or was so physically weak that uh, they conscript this Simon guy who was just sort of wrong place, wrong time. And they make him uh, carry the cross the rest of the way. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What's this about this wine mixed with myrrh? This would have been an ancient uh, uh, anesthesia, a, a narcotic, and a way to ease the, the suffering, to, to dull the senses of the condemned to die, sort of a last act of mercy. Jesus wouldn't take it. Why not? Because you don't drink on the job, and he's got a job to do. He's on a mission, isn't he? And he wants to feel it. He, 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 he doesn't want anything to dull his senses. So he refuses this, this narcotic because he's at work. He's on a mission. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. If you know your, your, your Bible history, you know that so much of what happened at the crucifixion uh, 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 is prophesied by the Old Testament. Psalm 22, for example, is about this righteous person crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been following you, but all these haters are coming after me. They're, they're, they're beating me, and they're taking my clothes and casting lots for my garments. Here it is. There's a scriptural fulfillment. You've heard sermons on the crucifixion. You know that this is agony. This is torture. Usually the condemned person would die the death of asphyxiation. They would become unconscious. They would lose so much blood. And finally, they were either nailed or, or, or tied to that crossbeam, And they couldn't lift themselves up to take a breath. Every time they'd have to lift themselves up to breathe. When they couldn't lift themselves up, everything would collapse. And they would die the cruel death of asphyxiation. We get the word excruciating pain from the Latin word crucifixion. That's the same root. That's where that comes from. So here, the, the man of sorrows, Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's 
dying on this cross. He's being crucified. Meanwhile, they're gambling for his clothes. Verse 25, and it was the third hour to keep us on track with the time frame. I put the, the how we use, the, we think of the way we divide time, you know, 12 hours, uh, 24 hours in a day. So, so I put them in brackets. 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. You get the scene? Jesus lifted up on a cross and two insurrectionists. Jesus had done nothing wrong. These were brigands, uh, uh, rebels against Rome, crucified on his right and his left. Now, with every verse, Mark is, 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 is tying up loose ends that he started throughout his gospel. This one, I think, goes back to a couple chapters ago. Do you remember? Oh, Jesus, he's trying to talk to his guys. He's trying to tell them, listen, I, I'm the Messiah, but I don't think the way I'm going to be a Messiah matches at all what you guys think Messiah is. Like, I don't think you're getting it. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. And then on the third day, rise again. In fact, I'm going to be killed by the religious leaders. They're going to kill me, right? To which every time the disciples were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But like, Jesus, when you get rich and famous, and Jesus is like, not hearing me. I'm going to Jerusalem where I will be killed and rise again. Yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. Here's the thing. Right? They don't get it. The most famous example of this, I think, was when two brothers, James and John, Jesus like, tells them, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. Or I'm going to be killed. And then on the third day, it rise again. And James and John are talking. He's like, what are you guys talking about? Well, Jesus, we were just thinking, when you get lifted up in Jerusalem, here's our only request. Me and James and John, you know, James and John, let one of us be on your right and let the other be on your left when you get lifted up in Jerusalem. Now you know why Jesus looked at him when they said that and said, you guys don't have a clue, do you? There will be one on my right and one on my left when I'm lifted up, but they're not gonna be on thrones. They're gonna be on crosses. That's why he asked them, can you drink from the cup I drink? Can you be baptized by the baptism with which I'm gonna be baptized? You guys don't get it. There will be one on the right and one on the left, but it won't be you, James and John. Those who passed by, verse 29, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, listen to this mockery. Ha! You! Oh, Mr. Big Talker! You who would destroy the temple. And he said that. He went around and everybody was like, look at these buildings. They're so nice. They'll be here forever. He said, no, 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 no. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll rebuild it. You who said that. Save yourself, verse 30, and come down from the cross. I mean, if you're such a big talker, save yourself. Even the chief priests and the scribes get in on the fun. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If you're the Messiah, like if you are the Christ, then let the Christ, this quote unquote king of Israel, come down now from the cross, and watch this, that we may see and believe. In other words, the religious leaders are like, even now it's not too late. If you will come down off the cross, give us something to go on. Lord, give us a sign. We'll, talk, we'll follow you. We'll rise up. We'll start the rebellion right here, right now. We'd still believe you. Oh, but you can't, can you? That's right. You can save all these other people, but really at the end of the day, you're powerless. Okay, that's what we thought. And then as if all this isn't enough, like, it's one thing to be mocked by the crowds. It's one thing to be mocked by the religious leaders. But this, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. How low do you have to be to use your last words on earth to revile some fellow 
uh, 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 prisoner. Incredible. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour, so that's noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. I believe Mark here is dipping into a very deep well of Old Testament scripture. And there's probably a lot of allusions here. I see no fewer than three. This darkness over the land for three hours. In the Bible, darkness represents judgment, uh, lament. And I wonder if Mark, with this darkness for three hours, I wonder if, uh, for one thing, I wonder if he's taking us all the way back to Genesis 1-1. Remember the very beginning of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's over the surface of the deep? What, 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 what is there in chaos before the beginning? There's darkness. That's why, what does God say? The very first thing he creates, day one, let there be light. I wonder if it's like that's the created order. When the sinless, spotless son of God dies on the cross, we move f- away from the created order. We move back to destruction and deconstruction. Like the created order itself is unraveling back toward chaos. Could be. Fast forward to Passover. I think there's an allusion here to Passover. What do I mean? How many plagues were there? When when, when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God got them out of Egypt. Do you remember there were 10, count them, 10 plagues. What was the last plague? The last plague was the death of the firstborn son or the death of the substitute Passover lamb. Either there would be a death of the firstborn son or there would be the death of the the lamb died in place of the son. And those who killed that spotless lamb and took the blood of the lamb and applied it to the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that house because the lamb had already died. So right before the death of the lamb, right before the death of the firstborn son came what? What was the ninth plague? What's the penultimate plague? What's the plague that comes right before the death of the firstborn son, the death of the spotless lamb? Don't you remember? The ninth plague was darkness. A darkness, Exodus says, that covered the whole land, and a darkness, according to Exodus, a darkness so dark it could be felt. It was dark for three days. Here, three hours, I think, picking up on that symbolism to say the next thing that happens is the death of the Passover lamb. Some of those are uh, allusions. This one is direct. There's a famous passage in the book of Amos. This is a prophet, and he wrote about this coming day of the Lord. He wrote about a day of judgment. Uh, they're so incredible, I put them up here. It's just two verses. Amos, eight, Amos, eighth chapter, nine and 10. Before I read these, remember, these were written hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus, and this is what the prophet prophesies. He looks into the future, and this is what he sees. There's coming a day of judgment. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, And darken the earth in broad daylight. There it is. Predicted literally. Word for word. Sun will go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. And verse 10, I will turn your feasts, like for example a Passover feast, okay? I will turn what should be a day day of celebration into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Wearing the sackcloth and ashes and shaving the head were signs of mourning and lament. It's, I will make it like the morning. In other words, you went from a day of celebration, I'm going to make it like a morning, and not just any morning, I will make it like the morning for an only son. You see that? Next part of that verse. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. 
I'm going to make the sun go down at noon, and I'm going to turn this day that you think is a day of feasting and celebration into a day of mourning, and not just any mourning, mourning like on the day, uh, the, the kind of grief you would experience at the funeral of an only begotten son. Amos, 8th chapter, hundreds of years before the cross. Now, if you read that whole thing in context, it's very clear. God is judging Israel. He's pouring out judgment on Israel so that he can restore Israel. How on earth can you pour out judgment on someone only to restore them? We, of course, know the answer is the cross. Jesus was the true Israel. God was pouring out wrath on Jesus in place of his people so that he can restore them. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, this is, again, 3 p.m., at the end of that darkness, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are obviously the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing what he had never experienced his whole life. His whole life he had had perfect fellowship with God the Father. But now, while he's on the cross, he's bearing the punishment for sin. He's bearing the wrath of God for sin. And Jesus has never felt that before. He's never felt sin before. What does sin, what does sin feel like? It feels like separation from God the Father. Feels like, like, like that fellowship with God the Father is broken. He's never felt that before. That's, by the way, why he prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't afraid of the cross. He, wa- he wasn't a chicken. He, he, he wasn't a coward. He wasn't afraid of the nails. He wasn't afraid of the crown of thorns. He wasn't afraid of the beating. He wasn't afraid of the mocking. He knew that to go to that cross meant to bear the wrath of God. No martyr has ever done that. That's why he prays if there's any other way. I don't want to feel that moment. I don't want to go through that moment. I don't want to be separated. The thing he valued more than anything in the world was his connection to God the Father. To lose that? And in the midst of that agony, y'all, in the, in the midst of hanging there, bleeding, dying on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, he never took his eyes off God. He says, my God. It's the only time he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in the midst of all that? Why not? Look at verse 35. Why not? It happened his whole ministry. Why wouldn't it happen in his dying hour? Why should we expect any different? In the moment, he needs somebody to stand with him and encourage him. He's utterly misunderstood. Yet again. His whole ministry has been misunderstood, so it's no surprise. When he cries out, quoting Psalm 22, which, by the way, is a psalm of trust in God. He never, he never stops trusting God. My God, my God, why? Eloi, Eloi, why? Uh, Lama Sambachthani, they hear Eloi, Eloi, and they think, he's, he's calling for Elijah. Remember, they're coming into the Passover from every kind of map dot town. You got Greek speakers, you got Roman speakers, and then you got like Hebrew speakers and Aramaic speakers. Then there's like Northern Aramaic and Southern Aramaic. You know, they, 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 you know, they, they, right? So they're all, all here together. They can't quite understand. So they hear Eloi, Eloi, and they said, some of the bystanders said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him and drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What's this about? All right, so the, the thing with Elijah, I know he keeps coming up all throughout the Gospel of Mark. The thing with Elijah is he technically didn't physically die. Now, we believe he's in heaven, the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him there. But remember that song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming For to Carry Me Home? That's how Elijah went home to heaven. A, a fiery chariot came and took him. So because of that, there was all this superstition about Elijah in the first century among the Jewish people. There's all this superstition. It's all legend. And basically the thinking was this. Elijah was like the patron saint of lost causes. And if you were a righteous person, and you were a righteous, lost 
cause. At the last second, at the very last second, Elijah, maybe with his fiery chariot, would swoop down and he would be disguised in the clothing and manner and custom of whatever day and age he needed to be in, and he would save. In this case, he would take Jesus down from the cross. So Jesus has to just stay alive long enough for Elijah to come. That's why that business about the sour wine. This is like a vinegar product. This is like first century electrolytes. This is the first ever Gatorade. They're like, hang in there, Jesus. If you can just stay alive, if we can just give you some, some liquids, if you can just stay alive, everybody give room, give room. Elijah will come. No one stops to ponder that if Elijah shows up, he's an 1,800-year-old superhero. It's okay, Gash, I'm here. Like, no one is at all, but it's clearly superstition, clearly legend. I just want you to see this. When Jesus Christ is hanging there on the cross, every ounce of his hope is in God, and these people want him to put his hope in a superstition. In his moment of agony, they're still crying out for this ridiculous legend, this superstition. Verse 37, Mark concludes the life of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And he does it so simply. The whole gospel, like a slow and steady drumbeat, has been building to this moment. And of all the ways he could have described the death of God, he says it this. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's typical with Mark. <laughs> That's what you get. That's the death of God. Now, what was this loud cry? Fact is, we don't know from Mark. But the other gospels seem to indicate that there were words to this loud cry. It wasn't just a roar that he said specific words. And the words, according to the other Gospels, that he cried out from the cross, his last words were, It is finished. A loud cry. And not just any loud cry, a loud cry, it is finished. We're going to hear in just a minute, that very cry is the thing that converted a centurion. Why? Because people don't die like that. Because of the nature of the line of work I'm in, from time to time, I've been around people at their deathbed. Uh, there's never a victorious loud cry. You've heard of the death rattle? People who were being crucified, all the books say the same thing. People who were being crucified were often unconscious hours before the life just slipped out of them. But not Jesus. Jesus goes out with a loud cry. Jesus goes out like victorious. Can you imagine before he dies, a centurion who has crucified a lot of people has never seen somebody say, and not yet, not yet, not yet. Now it is finished. It's not how it works. The centurion is shocked by this. Why? Because you see, if, if that's true, then apparently, unlike every other human being, death doesn't get to tell Jesus when it's time to go. Jesus apparently controls death. Jesus has come on a mission, and he's not going to give up on that mission until what? Until it is finished. He has come to bear the sin for you and me. He has come to bear the wrath of God, and he is going to hang on that cross until every ounce of sin is paid for, and it's paid in full. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. The Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. He came to lay his life down. So he gets to say, it is 
finished. It wasn't finished till he said it was finished. And when he said it was finished, it was finished. Why is that important? Because the uh, little phrase he used, tetelestai, was what you would stamp on a bill. So that if you paid off your, in ancient Rome, you went out and bought a brand new chariot. You shouldn't have gone into debt, and the Roman Dave Ramsey told you not to, but they had these sweet rims and whatever. And you made payments on this chariot. And then at the end, on your last payment, you would go to the clerk, and you would get stamped on this bill to tell us die. It is finished. These are the words. Jesus cried from the cross. Paid in full. The reason that was so important is that was your only proof. You didn't have electronic systems. You didn't have titles and records and all that stuff. You had that document, and it had a stamp and a seal from the Roman government that says paid in full. Why is that so important? Because at any time, if a creditor came knocking, yeah, we're here to repo your chariot. You don't have to fight. You don't have to get defensive. You don't have to say a word. You just go get that piece of paper. You hold it up. You show where it says paid in full. I believe we're done here. I believe we are. They go on their way. Why is that so important? It's important because I know how some of you feel. You never feel that you measure up. You never feel you're a good enough Christian. You feel like a failure. You feel like you're a failure as a dad. You're a failure as a husband. You feel like you're a failure as a mom, failure as a wife. I mean, you think you're doing good as a mom, and then you look on Instagram, I'm a failure. Look, they're perfect. You know? <laughs> I know. You feel that failure when it comes to God. I'm never enough. I, I can't be enough. And then, and then what happens is there's a voice. That voice is the accusers, the enemy. He comes to condemn. What does he come to say? He comes knocking. He says, hey, you're not good enough. God doesn't want you. Who do you think you are calling yourself a Christian? You know, it's only a matter of time before they find out. Hey, and Satan, what he loves to do is he loves to talk about all the debts you've created. He knows the ones. Hey, hey, let, 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 let's talk about your past. Oh, Satan, the, uh, let's don't talk about your past that like the statute of limitations has run up on and like you've cleaned up and you would share in a testimony. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the stuff. It doesn't matter how many years go by, you are never sharing it in a testimony. Your real past. Let's talk about your recent past, Satan says. Like real recent. Let's talk about that sin. Let's talk about the sin you committed on the way to church this morning. Some of you have managed to sin while you've been sitting in here in this worship service. And Satan wants to talk about that. And some of you are worried about the future. I won't be able to hang on. I won't be able to hold on. I won't have enough faith. What about the future sins you're going to commit? Hey, listen, church, you don't need to get defensive. You don't need to equivocate. You don't need to get into a big theological discussion. You simply need to hold up Mark chapter 15, verse 37, and tell that old devil three words. Paid in full. Uh, paid in full. I mean, even if everything the devil is saying is right, hell has no claim on you, has no hold on you. Why? Be, be, be paid in full. That loud cry means I'm free, forgiven. Romans 8 says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the only one who has a right to condemn you died for you. Paid in full. Every ounce of sin paid for. Whatever the, whatever the ransom for sin is, Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. As if all that's not enough, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Look at Mark's detail. Isn't this good from top to bottom? The story of human history, I believe, of all civilization is about humans trying to get to God, and we're trying to rip that curtain from bottom to top. <laughs> what do I mean? Do you remember the temple setup? The temple was all about access to God, and there was, there was increasing degrees of access to God. If you were a Gentile, forget about it. You couldn't even get close to the temple. If you were an Israelite, you could get into a certain courtyard. If you were an Israelite man, you could go a little further. If you were a particular kind of Israelite man, a priest, you could go into that courtyard. But only one could go behind the curtain. Only one could have access to God, the high priest. And he could only do it one time a year on the Day of Atonement, right? So the whole story of humanity, you know, the whole story of life, of civilization, of world religions. I'm talking about everybody, Muslims, Hindus, uh, Jews, Secular atheists, uh, you know, is trying to get to God, trying to rip that, that curtain. Everybody feels that separation from God, so we're trying to rip it open, right? Whether it's, it's religious salvation, follow the five pillars of Islam, or whether it's secular salvation, be true to yourself. And as long as you're true to yourself and help other people. And, and listen, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I mean, odds are most people can probably rip it better than I can when it comes to moral goodness. I mean, I had so many friends and neighbors in New York that were Muslim. I think they were a lot more moral people than I was. I know secular, secular atheists, secular humanists. They're doing a lot of good for the world. Man, they're really ripping. Yeah. They get about two, three inches, maybe a foot. Mother Teresa might have got like a foot and a half. That's great. Okay. See where I'm going with this? Our separation from God can't be ripped bottom to top. You're not gonna, it's not going to happen. You just don't have the moral goodness And not just you personally, no one ever. So God did something in Jesus Christ, incredible. He broke down the separation from top to bottom. you got to love the book of Mark, perfect symmetry. The book of Mark opens and closes with stuff being ripped open and God exploding into your life. Two times in the gospel of Mark, this word for rip is used, schizo. The first was at Jesus' baptism when the skies were ripped open and the voice comes down, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the end of the gospel, when the spotless lamb of God dies, the veil of the temple's ripped from top to bottom. Two times, stuff being ripped open and God coming into life. Well, when the centurion heard this, I wouldn't saw this, excuse me. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, oh, and y'all, this is what we've been waiting for. If you're just joining us, if this is your first time in the Gospel of Mark, please forgive this moment. But for those, this is a reward. For those of you who've been with the Gospel of Mark since the jump, you were here since kickoff. What did we say? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, Messiah and Son of God. And it took us so long to get the Messiah, didn't it? Like, think about all that Jesus had to do to get one person to admit he's the Messiah. Think about it. He had to heal all these people. He had to do all this stuff. And then finally, it took eight chapters, and finally, it was Peter who's like, 
you're the Messiah. And the whole church was like, yes, somebody finally gets his Messiah. When is somebody going to realize he's son of God? And I'm like, settle in. And we went through another month of teaching on Mark. And finally, y'all, finally, it's taken like almost all 16 chapters. But finally, he's been acknowledged as Messiah. And here we are. It is none other than a Roman centurion. The dude's never been to church in his life. The religious leaders missed him. But it's a Roman centurion who said, truly, this man was the Son of God. To which everybody who's been in the Gospel of Mark since the beginning, in your heart, you're like, yes, somebody gets it. He's Messiah. He's Son of God. When so many people missed it, why do you think the centurion got it? I don't know. But you know I have a hunch, right? You know I have a theory. I always have a theory. My theory is, because Mark never wastes a word, my theory is this. Who stood facing him. All the crowds were walking past him. And all the religious leaders were wagging their heads. And they're all walking past him. But the centurion stood and faced him. I'm going to ask the musicians to come and lead us in a time of response. Brandon, however you choose to do that as you, as you prepare. I, I wonder, can I ask you personally? It's easy in the Christmas season to just walk all past Jesus. Who is taking the time like we did this morning and just beheld the man of sorrows on that cross? When is the last time you considered, I mean, who stood facing him? That's why I think he got it. When no one else did. Walking past him. I'm, I, a lot of people reading articles about evangelicals. They're talking politically about this stuff. Ah, forget all that. <laughs> the son of God. For you and your salvation. I, um, I, 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 I want to close. I had, I had in mind to close out. Because it's not just the end of the sermon. It's the end of the whole series on the gospel of Mark. And I had in my heart to close with with something called the liar's truth. The liar's truth. We've looked at the king's cross. We've looked at the, the, the ancient word. The liar's truth. What do I mean by that? Uh, hold on to this all week long. The liar's truth. I, I, I see in here, and I can, I can do it real quick, but these people that were mocking and were being so sarcastic, these liars and mockers, they were absolutely true in what they said. It's incredible. It's incredible. The first is the Roman soldiers. Do you remember this? Go back to verse 18. They began to salute him, and they mocked him. It's a joke to them. And what do they say? Hail. Oh, hail. King of the Jews. Are you kidding me? They're testifying with their lips. Hail, King of the Jews. And it's all a joke. It gets even better. Look at the next verse. They kneel down. They're spitting on him and hitting him. But they kneel down in fake homage to him. Oh, how the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God. Do, do you realize what just happened? According to Philippians second chapter, it says one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. There those Roman soldiers did it right there. They may have meant it as a joke, but it happened. The other was the crowds. When they looked at him and said, oh, Mr. Big Shot, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. He did. 
the temple he was referring to was himself. The, the, the physical temple would be destroyed like 40 years after this, after this verse was written. That's gone anyway. But, 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 but he overthrew the whole temple system. You can read about it in the book of Hebrews. And now he is our great high priest. He's our temple. And when he died on the cross, he was rebuilt in three days. His body resurrected from the grave. God raised him from the dead. So here you have this, these liars, these mockers, and it's true. And the last one, I told you I'd do them quickly. Last one. This is the one that gets me every time is the one the chief priest said. Oh, he's a big talker. He can heal all these other people. I heard, I thought you could save people. Well, you saved others. He cannot save himself. <laughs> he saved others. He cannot save himself. It's mockery. Oh, but it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. He saved others, so he cannot save himself. Do you get it? Oh, he could have come down off that cross. He could have jumped down off that cross, no problem. But if he saved himself, you and I would be lost forever. So that means if he's going to save others, he himself will be lost. If he saved others, he cannot save himself. It was his life or yours. And he chose yours. So if he saved others, he would have to be lost. And that's what he did. Which means it wasn't nails that held our Lord Jesus to that cross. He could have come down off the cross. The nails were no problem. It wasn't ropes or nails through his feet. It wasn't a crown. No, no, no. He wasn't secured to that cross by an iron nail. It wasn't nails that held him to that cross. It was his love for you. What else can be said at the end of a gospel of Mark? If, look, look, if you are not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a believer, what, what else can be said? If you're watching this online right now or you're watching this video, you, you come across this, maybe you've just been scrolling through YouTube and you see this and somehow the, the, the story of Jesus' death on the cross has touched your heart. Like, you can be saved today. Like, like, this is it. This is the gospel. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God died in your place and for your salvation. So, so you have been rebelling against God. He paid for that rebellion. He paid it all. So what you can do is you can believe that he died for you. And you can believe that on the third day he raised up from the dead. And you can put your faith and trust in him and say, I want you to save me for all eternity. I don't want to be saved by myself or, 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 or try to save myself or, or salvation anywhere else. I'm going to call on you for salvation. And the Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. You need to be saved. Don't, don't wait another day. So if you've not been saved, like today, be saved. And for those of you who are believers, oh, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel of Mark is, is, is clear. He is the king of kings. He went to a cross. And that means we follow a crucified Messiah we must take on a cruciform life. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And that means we can, when the nations rage, we don't get offended. We don't, get, we don't have an ax to grind. We don't, we're argumentative and we can let go of malice and slander and jealousy and all that stuff. Why? Because of what he did for me, I can now live out every day and, and know that I'm, I, like, he saved me. 
And I can share that good news far and wide, and I can live out of that truth. The gospel will do more for the way you live every day than any sort of behavior management technique you could think of. Uh, Let this Mark 15 get deep in your heart and do its work. Let's pray together. God, grant that anyone who hears this message who is not yet saved, grant that today would be the day of their salvation. And God, thank you for, there's so many in the room, we just want to say thank you for the cross. We want to say thank you for what you did for us. Help us that we might remain tender hearted, that we wouldn't uh, ever uh, grow used to hearing about the great sacrifice you made for us and our salvation. And God, let us live out of that gospel good news every day and pour it out to other people. Let us love like you loved and live how you lived. And we look forward to that day when you return, when you split that sky one more time and uh, uh, take us home to new heaven, new earth. We look forward to that. And until that day, grant that we would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.